0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup for Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022, we're going to be answering the following three questions. First up, is a sense of normalcy returning to U.S.-China relations? Second, will in-person conferences ever be the same again? And third, how is the international education community responding to the war in Ukraine? We'll take a look at these three questions and more on today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. So let's get right into our first question, and as you know, for those who are veterans uh, of our podcast or watching us live on Facebook or on repeat on YouTube or Facebook, uh, we take our news stories from our newsletter each week called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, and we pick out some themes we see developing in those stories and go more in-depth to provide our take on how these stories impact what we do in international education. So for those who aren't subscribed, I'll dropping I'm dropping a link to the most recent newsletter edition in the chat on um, the comment section for this live event on our Facebook page for SMIE Consulting. But we'll also, uh, for those that would like to subscribe, if you haven't already, you can go to SMIE Consulting dot org slash subscribe and add your details in to get onto the mailing list for that. It'll come out Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern in your inbox and then you have the opportunity to figure out what we might be covering uh, on Wednesdays uh, during this roundup each week. So on this first question, is a sense of normalcy returning to U.S.-China relations? It's hard to say with any definitive in any definitive way that yes, it is, or no, it isn't. But certainly, because everything in this in today's world of interconnectedness and global strife and war war that's being waged, we we see bilateral and multilateral relations that are, are challenged in, and morph in times of uh, great uncertainty. And Certainly, what's happened with China is, is no exception to this rule. Uh, we've had uh, a period of four or five years, six years or longer, where we've been in a, a very significant economic trade war with, uh, with China, uh, but does that trade war impact negatively everything else about the relationship politically, uh, militarily? Um, educationally, uh, society, societally, all of these things can be impacted by world events and uh, multilateral relations oftentimes will, will morph over, year, over the years. Uh, but we certainly were in a bad place uh, and maybe still are in, 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 some, uh, some, in some ways with our relationship with China. Uh, we obviously know um, with the recently completed Winter Olympics, the U.S. boycotted those in terms of our political representation at the Games, uh, as did some other countries that did not uh, choose to send official representatives to the Games. Uh, we've seen uh, some, of, some of the some more positive steps taken recently uh, to kind of Repair some of the damage done in, during the previous administration, and uh, when it comes to international education programs, we've seen uh, China uh, back in in 2018. Uh, we saw, uh, actually, July of 2020. Excuse me, uh, an executive order was put that was came down that uh, that put a halt to the uh, China and Hong Kong Fulbright programs. Uh, And that had the international education community obviously fairly concerned because uh, international education, particularly Fulbright, has long been uh, seen as a program that builds bridges between countries uh, and that many international educators were uh, very sad to see that happen uh, this was at a time at the at the in the last days of the uh, Trump administration that uh, was kind of a culmination of a lot of uh, anti-china policies that were put in place at least economically and this was seen uh, at, uh, kind of a a knock-on effect from the China Initiative that the Trump administration started uh, to uh, kind of look into spying concerns uh, between uh, for Chinese researchers and, and students coming to the United States uh, to uh, and stealing technology. Uh, we know it has happened, uh, but. To put the brakes on a massively popular program, a very much a flagship program for the State Department over the years, uh, to to suddenly cut that off, uh, to cut those student exchange off was um, was it was it was very damaging. So we'll see what happens, but what one piece that has come out recently is the House of Representatives is taking up legislation to reestablish Fulbright in China and Hong Kong. And this is obviously seen as a very positive, a positive sign in international education circles that uh, we would hope, uh, uh, hope starts to rebuild some of the bridges um, that had been burned over the years. Uh, over the most recent years, with uh, between U.S. and Chinese um, political uh, oper- operations and policies, uh, we hope that this does turn into something uh, much more, uh, uh, as a sign of positive things to come. So, uh, Fulbright obviously is a is a as we as we've talked about is a very important symbol of. Um, U.S., China, U.S. and uh, multilateral relations with countries around the world. Uh, we've I've talked in the past about Education USA. Uh, that's the State Department's network of overseas advising centers around the world. Uh, there, it's a loose confederation of uh, ho- different hosting organizations that uh, where these advisors that help students who don't have help in their own schools, which is the greater majority of schools around the world, uh, for finding U- U.S. college options or even just having a college counselor. Uh, but these advisors um, are housed in embassies, they're housed in universities, by national centers, uh, other NGOs, um, American councils, um, Almad East. But Fulbright is one. Of the, has been one of the major homes for Education USA around the world in Fulbright Commission offices, uh, particularly in Latin America, throughout Europe, and a number of other locations around the world. So to see this program coming back, uh, to uh, see it particularly State Department uh, potentially green lighting. Uh, well, it's not really their uh, that they're their operator for the program, but. Uh, some of the NGOs like IIE and others that actually do the uh, s- student selection, that type of thing, there may be new requirements put on them in terms of uh, vetting for uh, uh, for some of the concerns related to what the uh, what what the Trump administration rightly did point out the civil military fusion strategy that the Chinese government has uh, to try and embed in U.S. institutions, uh, students and scholars that can. Uh, potentially retrieve um, intellectual property um, uh, to uh, to bring it back to China. Uh, and that's, that was one of the major concerns of the launch of the, to the Trump initiative, uh, what was happening. And there were restrictions placed on visas being issued to students who had connections to the civil-military fusion strategy of institutions in China. So we'll see what happens with this, but it's certainly a positive one, and we'll, uh, we'll certainly keep you posted on other developments. But uh, as part of this, uh, not just the potential reestablishment of uh, Fulbright with China and, and Hong Kong, Hong, Hong Kong, you also have the news story this past week that the Justice Department has formally dropped the China Initiative as a as a, a program of um, of seeking out cases related to espionage related to China, um, and that is certainly something that um, the question that was raised apparently uh, related to this was uh, related to the to the. Uh, China initiative and why it was dropped. The key, and this is the quote from uh, Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson in a speech given on Wednesday last week. Uh, the key question was whether this framework still best serves the strategic needs and priorities of the department. While I remain focused on the evolving significant threat that the government of China poses, I've concluded that this initiative is not the right approach. So, certainly, it caused uh, some significant bad will. Uh, with, uh, within the Chinese and Chinese American uh, community in the United States, uh, feeling that uh, Chinese uh, scholars and Ch- Chinese heritage scholars were being targeted uh, by uh, this initiative, uh, kind of guilty before uh, bef- uh, until proven innocent type of approach, uh, and that had a, uh, left a, some significant marks and strains on um, on scholars and, and students uh, from China that were involved in. These cases that were brought, uh, many were many were, were have been dismissed, and those that went to trial um, have uh, really re- experienced mixed results. Uh, and the ones, the hot, most high-profile profile one, uh, with um, with a Harvard professor, really didn't involve anything related to espionage or anything like that. It's a guy who cheated on his taxes, basically, and wasn't honest with the. Uh, with the with the Feds on uh, on his relationships, uh, financial relationships in particular with the Chinese Thousand Talents Program uh, and the university he was he was working for, uh, but you see in this move, uh, it's a symbolic move in a lot of ways because there will still be cases pursued if there's evidence, and uh, instead of having uh, something of a uh, what for lack of a better term a witch hunt uh, that might have been. Uh, Improperly targeting uh, Chinese professors and Chinese American professors, many of which have have had the case, their cases dismissed, and um, some a couple of the, of these professors are now seeking reparations, really, because the damage that's been done to them. By this, by the administration's uh, approach, uh, with the cases now being dismissed, their reputations have, have been sullied over the last two, three, four years that these cases have been uh, making making their way through the courts. So, uh, this is interesting to see this uh, the combined Fulbright and China Initiative uh, in the same week. Uh, certainly, that's a sign of some more positive things happening. Uh, of course, these stories were all happening be- uh, immediately before. Uh, what has transpired in the Ukraine uh, beginning last Thursday, and as most uh, prognosticators in the United States on the political side and abroad were, were saying that the invasion of Russia was coming, uh, it certainly has Deflected attention uh, away from China and as a as a pariah uh, to to now a very strong focus on Russia and we'll talk more about that in some of our in our third question of the day, but uh, normalcy for U.S. China relationships in a relative world uh, compared to. Compared to what's happening now with Russia, obviously, uh, it's a much more normal normal setting than it ever was uh, before. But uh, you have concerns over uh, what China's intentions are related to t- Taiwan, seeing what Russia has been able to do in the Ukraine, uh, not in U- in the Ukraine, I have to stop doing that. It's not the Ukraine, it's just Ukraine, uh, that um, we're, there, there, there are obvious concerns that will China uh, they've always said that Taiwan's a, a port, part of China, uh, but what will they do to make that a reality? And, um, by by militarily taking it over, will that ever happen? Is that are, tight, are tensions heightened because of what Russia is doing in Ukraine? Um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but there's those uh, Russia and China have certainly deepened their relationship uh, in the vacuum that's been created by the U.S. stepping out of constructive engagement with China on a lot of issues uh, in recent years. So that has brought uh, Russia and China closer together as uh, kind of the authoritarian superpowers in the world, uh, and that's uh, potentially uh, a, a relationship that needs to be watched, and we'll talk more about that in, in future editions of the Roundup, I'm sure. Now onto a little bit brighter com- our conversation, and that is related to in-person conferences. Uh, there was a recent article last week in, actually a couple weeks ago now, uh, in the Chronicle that uh, says, the academic conference will never be the same again. It's an opinion piece uh, from someone who, on the academic side, uh, and it is again, titled the academic conference will never be the same. And it's uh, based on her reflections attending uh, an in-person event. Uh, that uh, in light of uh, the COVID restrictions being uh, released uh, or removed in a lot of different uh, cities around the, wo- around the country and around the world, uh, that I'm uh, starting to see more in-person events happening again. Uh, but the question is, can, uh, that, can it compete with the convenience of our computer screens? Now, I will say that there is, uh, there is some merit in what, uh, what, the, what the author of this, uh, this piece has said. Uh, she's referring to a recent uh, MLA event, Modern Language Association. So, an academic uh, meeting. Uh, their national association had an event in, in, at the Marriott Marquis in Washington D.C. Uh, that uh, normally has thousands of people attend, but uh, the attendance was was down considerably. Uh, that uh, in the exhibit hall, in particular. Um, there was mostly vacant meeting space. Uh, you think that um, this would not be the case, but uh, it clearly was. It uh, was still an issue. Uh, the conference fees, uh, and we know this in international education, uh, the money that uh, for a lot of these uh, associations, their annual conferences have been, are their annual money makers. That's how they fund a lot of their activities throughout the rest of the year, uh, through exhibit halls, registration fees, all of the lot. Uh, so the question is uh, related to this is uh, and for example, we've, we know an in international ed NAFSA, the kind of the largest international education organization. conferences pre-pandemic were attracting 9, 10,000 people or more from around the world uh, to, uh, to talk about international education. Issues to have exhibitors, and uh, which includes service providers, but it also includes our consortium from around the world. Universities from different countries would have uh, their whole sway of booths that they would uh, uh, have have available for prospective um, clients to, to connect with. And that, uh, in international ed circles, is so important those opportunities to connect with your partner universities, with your uh, folks you've been working with on digital programs or online uh, initiatives, now getting to make uh, reinforce those relationships in person uh, instead of just seeing everybody on Zoom. And that's been, last two years, has been predominantly what we've all experienced. And I think, Perhaps for academic conferences uh, where the interaction with colleagues is certainly great, but it's not the prime reason you go to those things. It's sharing expertise. It's uh, picking up knowledge uh, that you need to help you do your jobs better. That still happens. Uh, uh, That happens in what, what many of these hybrid conferences have become. Uh, where the where there's a significant online element uh, to it where uh, sessions and uh, are offered uh, online uh, to, to to broaden the scope of folks who can uh, access the information uh, and participate in discussions uh, online certainly provides that outlet uh, I've seen uh, when it comes to international ed uh, for my bit for my business uh, my consulting business, uh, I've, I noticed a switch when I uh, left the institutional side started working for education USA how important those one-on-ones uh, we were able to have with in, with individuals uh, from the higher ed side or advisors uh, just having that opportunity to meet in person was was so fulfilling in a way that uh, the connections with those people that you've been dealing with over email or over virtual meetings whatever you finally get a chance to connect with them in person that has so much value, professionally, uh, psychologically, uh, emotionally, uh, prof- uh, just it, it really fuels me at least, and uh, in a way that uh, that I've I have can not get at uh, virtual conferences. And from from a selfish perspective, uh, since I've been running my consulting business, the opportunities I need to cement relationships, to explore new opportunities, to hey walk around the exhibit hall. I spent. For The last NAFs, few NAFSAs before uh, before COVID, uh, I would spend ninety percent of my time in the exhibit hall meeting, uh, having either having appointments with folks uh, that we use the exhibit hall as a meeting place, but uh, me meeting with current. Uh, Current folks that I'm working with on projects to uh, start talking about new projects with new vendors uh, or service providers to look at new university partnerships that um, potentially I could, uh, I, can be, I could be expanding uh, my work uh, with them. So professionally, I wouldn't get that opportunity in a productive and realistic way in a virtual event or even a hybrid event if the folks that I need to meet with aren't there. So the real value for me, um, and I saw this uh, at an event in December, a smaller international event uh, in Miami at, at the ARC conference, the opportunity to, to interact again, uh, the uh, almost the novelty of being able to interact with folks again after two years in person was significant, but uh, certainly renewed some uh, some strong relationships, uh, uh, helped uh, spark some new ones into life, and gave me opportunities to explore what else was going on in the profession uh, that was different, that was new, that was uh, potentially something that could be leveraged down the road. And certainly when I think uh, about other conferences, I know uh, last week in New Orleans, I uh, had the AIEA conference for SIOs, so there were about 500 attendees there. Uh, they have, I think, pre-pandemic they were closer to a thousand uh, at registrants, So there's pot- potentially still some uh, issues with folks being able to travel uh, to uh, from overseas to the event, and we'll really see the fruit of that, I think, in, in when it comes to NAFSA, what that will look like in Denver yeah, at the end of May. Uh, we'll see what the overseas population will be, because I know. That was the case in in December and for this uh, international airsea conference, uh, that the number of overseas participants, uh, the agents that were were able to come from overseas, uh, was down significantly because uh, visa restrictions and vaccination requirements had kicked in. So that was something that you certainly need to need to be aware of, and there may be impacts to NAFSA in May, but. Uh, We'll see what happens. Uh, But it's going to be a a real test, I think, on a large scale, what that looks like for international educators, whether we are ready uh, or able to meet uh, in large groups. Again, there's going to be a mask uh, mandate in place for the conference, even though Denver has lifted their, uh, and Colorado has lifted their mask mandate uh, for the conference, there will be one. Um, Vaccinations are going to be required, uh, that type of thing. So all of that's going to be a nice, uh, an interesting test to see where we are, uh, certainly on a macro scale for international education. But uh, I, I certainly see um, see international educa- international in person international ed conferences uh, returning to probably not their full luster, but uh, certainly uh, in May we'll see a good good percentage of uh, of whether or not that's even going to be possible again uh, for the next year or two. But uh, we'll talk more about that, uh, as we, and we'll have some first-person accounts, certainly when we're in, uh, in Denver for the conference. We'll be doing our live uh, live shot from the, from the exhibit hall floor on that Wednesday. i uh, looking forward to that and seeing who we can uh, get connected with and have some conversations with. So uh, last question of the day. Let's shift gears and talk about uh, the international education community and our response to the war in Ukraine. Obviously, it's it's hard not to get sucked in to what's what's happening uh, in Ukraine right now, and whether it's uh, just the amazing bravery uh, being shown by uh, the people in Ukraine, the the we are uh, uh, kind of th- dismissing entirely uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, um, wrongheaded theory on uh, Ukraine is just a. Post Cold War or post Cold War post Soviet Union construct, uh, it was just a republic. It never really was. It was really always part of Russia, and I think that's uh, in the megalomania that is uh, in the mind of um, of Vladimir Putin. You see, uh, you see that uh, quite clearly in his uh, his view of. Um, of Ukraine, uh, that this goes back to 2014 with the annexation of Crimea, invasion and annexation of Crimea, as well as the uh, the Donbas region in eastern Ukraine that has been undergoing uh, basically a civil war there uh, since 2014 as well. So uh, the uh, this isn't new for Putin, but certainly in terms of his uh, his approach to. Uh, and his view on uh, the the collapse of the Soviet Union and his regrets that uh, he, w- he wasn't around to impact uh, uh, what how those decisions were made. He certainly didn't uh, didn't agree with where it went, uh, how it went. Uh, but certainly he's uh, imposing his worldview now uh, on anybody who will listen. He's isolated himself in a number of ways in very real and physical ways. Uh, certainly during COVID. He's someone who doesn't use a cell phone who anytime you see him in a meeting room, he's at a, one end of a, a 20, 30-foot table and with the people he's talking to. Uh, yeah, he cuts himself off from the world very realist in very real ways uh, in terms of his his information sources. if um, uh, he also is, through his actions, he has isolated himself even further. And you're seeing certainly... Um, A lot of uh, higher ed associations have uh, joined with, joined in particularly in the United States we'll cover this next week but um, uh, higher ed associations that are now uh, asking for temporary protected status for Ukrainians uh, in the United States to give them the benefits of uh, not having to worry about their visa status for the time being uh, and Iie has stepped up as they always do with their scholar rescue fund to and student uh, emergency funds excuse me to uh, f- to help uh Economically, students that are impacted, uh, Ukrainian students that are impacted by uh, the war there, uh, and you see a unification um, in all sort, all walks of life, frankly, uh, against. Uh, what Russia has done here against Putin, particularly the sanctions that are in place, you have neutral countries like Sweden and, and Switzerland uh, jumping in on all the sanctions and the banking restrictions and uh, freezing assets and all of that. Uh, closing airspace, uh, Putin has overstepped uh, clearly, and he's being uh, punished for it. And uh, in effect, the Russians, uh, Russian people, are being uh, uh, going to be uh, damaged by this. The Russian economy certainly will be. Uh, and there is pressure that needs to be brought to bear on Russia to stop what they're doing. And uh, what that f- final straw will be, we don't know yet. But uh, early days certainly show the. Uh, unanimity within the international community to to stand up and say this is wrong. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to support what's uh, going on. Uh, not going to support uh, what Russia is doing. Uh, we are going to stand up for uh, for freedom of freedom of travel, freedom of education for, for students, and support those that are impacted by this. Uh, we I've seen associations, AirSea, others have come out. Uh, in the U.S. with uh, statements about uh, what's happened in Ukraine and uh, institutional organizational positions are being made clear. But we also see uh, see reluctance uh, in some countries to Kind of take that step, even though we've seen the uh, International Olympic Committee uh, making recommendations to, to ban Russians from participating. They already had a, a very spotty track record for participation with uh, all the dr- doping issues that they've had. And they're not being able to compete as Russia, just the Russian Olympic Committee, really a farce. And uh, frankly, uh, you don't want to punish the individual athletes, but hey, all, all of the, their athletes, but they're, they're part of a system uh, that is... Uh, um, inherently uh, corrupt in some ways when it comes to, uh, to competition. Uh, and we see some of that, some of those that corruption making its way to the top of the cha- top of the food chain in Russia. So uh, you've seen uh, FIFA and UEFA in soccer, uh, world football, uh, ban Russian indefinite Russia Russian teams indefinitely from participation in their competitions. Uh, that has uh, implications in a World Cup year. Uh, there's still some playoff World Cup playoffs positions to be uh, sorted out. Um, so there, there's a lot uh, of Frankly, uh, global support for punishing Russia here, and uh, how the international Ed community has responded uh, to this. Uh, we've seen um, we've seen the statements as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we've seen uh, we've he- heard some stories uh, from uh, students that are trying to escape that have been have been stuck in uh, stuck in in. In Ukraine, there are 76,000 international students as of 2020 were, were studying in Ukraine. Uh, there's a Pi News article about Nigerian students five that make up 5.5% of the number of international students there that were having trouble getting out. Uh, that were experiencing issues and we've heard in other areas uh, that these, these same students were, were experiencing issues at the border where um, they were being Kind of beaten back and said, "Go to the end of the line." You're, uh, you, uh, because they were they, they weren't Ukrainian women and children trying to leave, so they were told you have to go to the end of the line, uh, instead of being just let through. So uh, you've seen the unfortunate circumstance. We found out uh, late last week of a of an Indian student who was studying abroad in in Italy or in Ukraine uh, had. Uh, during uh, during some bombings there, so it's a very sad situation. Obviously, um, there'll be more stories like this, uh, but I think international education certainly. Uh, I've 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 not seen a, a unanimity uh, of opinion on on the sector uh, within the sector as strong as I've seen it with with this, where it's clear that Ukraine is um, is being. Uh, Has been invaded. Uh, It's clear that the pretexts for invasion were bogus and completely um, uh, unbelievable uh, in the world community, Uh, other than a few stragglers like Belarus that might be holding on to Russia's coattails as long as they can until they become. even more tainted than they already are by the uh, Putin's brush. Uh, but you see the attack has, has largely been condemned uh, by the international community. I know there are, there are some colleagues who, uh, particularly in the UK, that are a bit up in arms that more universities, uh, very few have actually uh, made any statements related to this, uh, particularly to their own, looking at their own Russia ties. Uh, we've seen in the United States, MIT has uh, uh, has cut all ties with a, a Russian institution that actually they actually helped uh, help get off the ground. Uh, they're cutting off that. Um, we've seen uh, even U- in U.S. energy companies uh, cutting ties with uh, with Russian investments uh, on on a lot of different levels. Companies worldwide. Apple stopped production and uh, of any, any and service uh, in in Russia as well. So you see this really as a almost a universal. Condemnation of what Russia's done, and a, a universal support for p- peace. Frankly, in uh, in Ukraine and globally on, uh, as well. But uh, Ukrainian courage, uh, exemplified by their 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 army, by the volunteers, uh, the, the the folks in Ukraine uh, in Kiev that in Kiev, I should say, that are. Uh, were signing up to, to join the armed forces, uh, they're actually preventing males from leaving the country between fighting age 18 and 60, but you see people willingly taking up arms that they're giving – the government was giving away AK-47s to anyone who wanted them to help defend and prepare to, be, to, to fight in the streets against uh, the Russian invaders. Uh, but you see a lot, uh, a lot of signs that this uh, was, there were miscalculations made on the Russian side about how strong the resistance would be by, uh, by the Ukrainian people uh, and the government. Uh, the 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 president of Ukraine, uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky, has been a beacon of hope and courage and strength. and Not uh, cowering uh, away in in a bunker, he's 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 he's, he's on the streets. He's uh, uh, he's he's. Kind of sticking it to uh, Putin, and rightly so. Uh, he's uh, not backing down, and uh, his his people are taking courage of courage from from that. Uh, he's acting uh, as uh, John Stewart called it. He's t- seeing we're seeing uh, for those who don't know, he, he, the president of Ukraine is a former stand-up comedian. Uh, so we're seeing John Stewart made the reference that we're seeing Shecky Green turn into Winston Churchill. Uh, with his, his 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 courageous speeches and his willingness to not cower away and be there to not leave, he could have he had an easy way out. He, could, he was uh, U.S. was willing to have him uh, evacuate him and have him operate in exile, uh, but he said, "No, I'm staying here. I need I need uh, I need ammunition, not a, not a ride." Uh, so you see, in Ukraine, a country that it's hard not to rally around. For me personally, uh, the number of friends uh, that I've known through the years, um, through Education USA, advisors, um, former REACs who lived in in, in uh, and current REACs who have lived and worked in Kyiv, that have had to evacuate friends who uh, were in the Peace Corps there, that have had to relocate back to the U.S., uh, embassy folks that are, were working there, that um, that have, that have had to leave as well. Or relocate, so you see such a such a uh, such a, a universal support for for the people of Ukraine for uh, for what's going on there, and I think the international aid sector is well placed to, to be a voice uh, to add their voice to the calls on uh, for an end to end to the violence there, uh, as they should. So uh, sad topic to end on today, but certainly one that needed touching on, and I'm sure there'll be more conversations related to this and, and other topics like it in the weeks and months to come. So until next time, we wish you the very best and have a good rest of your week. Cheers.